Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, If you'd like to read along this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke as we have been in chapter 11. And today's passage is really, uh, it's interesting, I'll say it that way. And so we're going to kind of go through it in chunks. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll ask ourselves what any of this actually might have to say to us this morning. Luke chapter 11. It says this. Jesus was driving out a demon, as you do. Like how casual that is. It's just like, oh, and by the way, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against itself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. But if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges." But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person... It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. What an interesting scene. Years ago, when I was... uh, First starting out as a pastor, I was in a discussion with a large group of people, and, and in, as a part of the discussion, one individual told a story about a friend of his. And he said that his friend was out with his wife, and they were doing some grocery shopping in the early evening, when his friend was overcome by this feeling that he just had to start grabbing stuff off the shelves 
and throwing it into his grocery cart. Now, this is not like where you see something and you think, oh, that would be fun to have at home, and you grab it, like I do with Cheez-Its. Any Cheez-Its fans? You can never have too many. Everyone always thinks I'm crazy because I have four or five boxes. I wasn't so crazy when the pandemic hit because I was loaded up. It was all ready. It's not like when you see something impulse by. He was saying, something came over me and stuff I would never think to grab off the shelf. I started grabbing it off the shelf and putting it in the cart and grabbing things. And he finally says to his wife, I don't know why I'm doing this, but we need to go through every aisle. And they fill up their grocery cart to where it's like heaping full. And so they get the groceries all bagged and they're walking out and they get in their car and he says to his wife, I don't think we're supposed to go home. And at this point, his wife's like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. I just don't think we're supposed to go home. She said, well, where are we going? He said, I don't know. And so this guy tells us that his friend and his wife drive into this neighborhood nowhere near their own, and they park in front of this house. It's now dark out, and this house is all lit up with lights. And so he says to his wife, let's grab the groceries. So they grab the groceries, they get up to the door, they ring the doorbell, and this woman answers. And this guy, feeling like this is going to freak her out, says, um... I don't know how to tell you this, but my wife and I were grocery shopping. I had this overwhelming feeling that we were supposed to buy a bunch of groceries. And then when we got in the car, we had this other feeling like I wasn't supposed to go home. And we're here with all these groceries. I don't know what any of this means. And the woman starts weeping. And she says, well, my husband and I lost our jobs a couple of months ago. And this this evening, we gave our kids their last meal. And we decided after the meal to pray with our kids that God would somehow provide. So my friend tells this story. And all of us have like chills and like tears in our eyes. We're like, what? And then this one guy in the group goes, you know, that's fascinating, but you could probably explain all of that. (laughs) There's always one in every crowd, isn't there? You could explain all of that. It's like people who watch an X-Men movie and are like, you know, that's not real. Yes, we do. We're fully aware it's not real. Like just that cynical, skeptical, skeptical, contrarian. You're like, please just stop talking. This is a little bit of what's going on with Jesus. There's apparently a fella who cannot speak. Now, in the ancient world, they would often take physical illness or mental illness and attribute it to the evil powers. And for us, that might seem a little bit archaic or primitive, but keep in mind, they had a creation poem. In Genesis chapter 1, there was this poem that taught that when God came into the chaos, there was order. When God, when God's spirit hovered over the wild and the waste of the waters, there was order and healing and wholeness that came about. And so when you encountered something that was not whole, that was not healed, that felt chaotic, well, it's obviously not of God, therefore there's something else going on. And for them, they often use the term unclean spirit or evil spirit. 
And so it is with this guy, he's unable to speak, and Jesus comes and he heals the guy, and the guy begins speaking, and you would think everyone would be filled with awe and wonder, as it says, the people were amazed, but then there's that one guy who's like, we all know what's going on here, right? Power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan, that's how he's doing all of this. And apparently, this cynicism gains some traction because it doesn't say Jesus knows what he's thinking. It says he knows what they are thinking because some of them are the ones who said it. Now, at one level, it seems like a completely outrageous thing to say. But what else can you say? You walk in, you know who this guy is. He has not spoken a word for years. And somehow, after encountering Jesus... He begins speaking. You can't argue against that. Just like this guy who couldn't argue against the facts that this woman and her family received groceries, all you can do is kind of cast a little cynicism toward it. You can make a baseless claim, a baseless accusation, which is what happens here. And they do this because, let's be honest, baseless claims... Baseless accusations, they're powerful, which is why we still do that in our world today. And what makes them really powerful is when there's like a thread of familiarity in the claim or the accusation, which is the case here. There's actually multiple layers that this claim that he's doing this by the, by the power of Beelzebul, which is the Hebrew name, uh, nickname, if you will, for the evil one. It's, it's like built on some ideas. First, there's the cultural idea. The theologian and historian Paul Hollenbach points out that along with exorcists and exorcisms often came the discrediting claim that these people were involved in witchcraft, that these people were involved in some sort of sorcery or divination. And the idea being, if someone's willing to encounter someone who's obviously possessed by an evil spirit, then likely they themselves are familiar with these spirits, which is how they see them and call them out. And the way that they cast these demons out is by using the power of a more powerful spirit to cast them out. And you begin using words like witchcraft and divination and sorcery in the ancient world, that gets people a little frightened. And I would suggest today, it still could make us a little uncomfortable. I mean, imagine like you're at a cocktail party, and you see someone that you've never met, and you're like, hey, what's your name? Daniel, what's your name? Michael, nice to meet you, Daniel. Daniel says, so what do you do for work? And I say, I'm a pastor. And what do you do for work? I'm an exorcist. None of you would be like, oh, that's fascinating. Tell me more. You'd be like, okay, that's great. We're just going to go over here now and have another drink. Because there's still something that just feels weird about it. Something that feels a little off-putting. Something that we almost want to distance ourselves from, which is why we see these films that come out around this time of year, around Halloween, and there's always this little like, oh, I kind of want to watch it, but that's creepy. Paul Hollenbach says, culturally, this is what would happen. It was used to discredit anyone who was doing this sort of work, this sort of healing. That's one layer. Then there's another layer that's a historic layer. 
In between the time that the Hebrew scriptures were written and the Christian scriptures are written, it's not like people stopped writing. There was a lot of historical books written that we now call the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha has a lot of writings, and one of these writings that was written about 175 years before Jesus is a book called the Book of Enoch. Now, part of the Book of Enoch has a very lengthy description of the history of Israel. And it's told in a very, like, story, metaphor kind of way. It's actually referred to as the Animals of the Apocalypse. Which, by the way, would that not be a great band name? <laughs> We're going to the Mission Ballroom tonight to see Animals of the Apocalypse. No way, how'd you get tickets? Like, be kind of cool. Anyway, Animals of the Apocalypse. Now, one of the things that this story says very clearly is this. That when Israel lost its independence, speaking of losing its independence to Assyria and Babylon hundreds of years before, that God relegated the rule of Israel over to two powers, fallen angels or demons, and earthly powers who were under the rule and the reign of the fallen angels. And so when, in Jesus' day, you're under the rule and the reign of Rome, you're no longer independent, when you start saying things like, well, we know how he's doing this, you're not just saying you're in league with the evil one, you're also beginning to make some sort of political claims about who this is, rooted in your historic past. You think this guy's here to liberate you? No, 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 no. He's, he's in league with the evil one and probably with Rome. Then... There's the religious layer. Like, we might be able to hear this idea of like, ah, oh, he's doing this by the power of Satan, and be like, no, he's not, and you just move on. But this is actually a claim that if found guilty, you would be executed by the religious community because it is against the law for you to practice any kind of divination or any kind of sorcery or worship any other gods. Therefore, you would be stoned to death. Which means if someone makes this accusation, you can't just brush it away. You actually have to almost like entertain it and see, is this really, really true? You see, these accusations, these claims that are made after Jesus heals this man, they really have like a thread of familiarity. It's enough to get people to go, huh, I wonder if that's true. And sometimes that's all that's needed, isn't it? Notice, they don't build the case. They don't point out all of the reasons they believe this. They don't present any real facts or evidence. They just almost appeal to people's emotions. They appeal to what they may have known from culture and from history and from religion. All things that are familiar, all things that could lead them to say, huh, I wonder if that's true. This is actually what makes these kind of things work. And we know that because they're still happening today. I don't know if any of you are familiar with our political moments. It's now been a political season, a political eon maybe is more like it, it feels like. I mean, very civil, mature, thoughtful dialogue rolling around up on Capitol Hills all over the country, isn't it? Now, what do we do? Well, if they're across the proverbial aisle, then we just cast dispersions upon them. We make baseless claims and accusations against them, and it works. 
Because what it's doing is it's appealing to the way that you think or it's appealing to your emotions. It's not really appealing to any facts. It's not like we need those anyway. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, yeah, that's what they always do, you're guilty of it too. It's happening on all sides. For some reason, we're just drawn like moths to this flame when we see kind of this name-calling. I mean, it sounds so immature when you say like, oh, they're calling each other names. But you know what that does? Something locks inside your head and you're like, yeah, yeah, they are kind of stupid just because they think differently than you. Yeah, they really do want that, which is opposite of what I want. And we begin to build this head of steam amongst ourselves. And by the way, it's not just out there on Capitol Hill. It's with us as individuals, isn't it? When was the last time you came across someone or something that you didn't like? Were you like, oh, it's really refreshing that we live in a world where people are allowed to believe differently than me and than my group. And as a matter of fact, what we ought to do is be curious and move toward them, seek understanding so that we can learn from one another and maybe realize at the end of the day, we all have the same values. We just have different ways of getting there. No, that's not what we do. And I know that because there's this little thing called social media. You know the cesspool of human communication? It's fascinating to watch the way people just unload on one another. You don't need facts. You just need to call them a name. You just need to accuse them of something. And then people will quickly pile on one side or pile on another. And we do this because it seems to work. And if somebody says something about you, you're going to fire back with something about them. We love the rumors. We love the salacious accusations. Now, I know within the Christian community, we never do that because the Bible talks about the tongue and words all the time, and we obey the Bible. We're serious about the Bible. We just need to process with our friends about someone else, or we need to pray for them. But I need to tell you what we need to pray for. That's the same exact thing. This is what's happening with Jesus. He does something that they can't deny, so let's just throw everything we have at him. And so then Jesus, it says, knowing his thoughts, looks at them and says, no, I'm not. You are. Now, Jesus actually has a brilliant response, and I want to suggest Jesus cuts through all of this baseless talk that doesn't get anyone anywhere. Jesus basically says this. So you think I'm doing this by the power of Satan? Okay, if that's the case, and Satan is working against Satan's self, then how is that kingdom ever going to stand? A house divided will not stand, is the idea. So help me understand, if this is what you're saying, how is this ever going to work? So Jesus initially, by saying that, kind of denies the claim by pointing to how illogical their claim is. Then he says this, which I find fascinating. He says, um, if I do this by the power of the evil one, then how do your followers cast out demons? In other words, saying like, hey, listen, if I'm not doing this by the power of Beelzebul and you're against me, whose side are you on? And before you answer that question, what do you say about your followers who are doing the same thing I'm doing when I'm healing this guy? There's this very subtle 
thing that Jesus is doing here, saying, aren't we all doing this by the power of God? Aren't we all on the same team? Aren't we all a part of the same people? And then Jesus says to them, listen, I'm doing this by the finger of God, which means the kingdom has come upon you. So Jesus doesn't just appeal to logic. There's another layer to what he's saying here, and this is history. The foundational story for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people, is the story of the Exodus, when they were enslaved by the Egyptians for 430 years, and then God sent Moses and his brother Aaron to liberate the people, to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And if you know the story, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, said no. And so God says to Aaron and Moses, all right, I'm going to start sending plagues. Now, it seems like a random thing, these plagues, except for the fact that every plague was really a cosmic battle between the God of Israel and the gods, plural, of the Egyptian pantheon. And so the first plague comes, Aaron does it, and the magicians that serve in Pharaoh's court replicate the plague. It's a way of saying like, yeah, you think your God's powerful, our God can do that too. Then there's the second plague, Aaron sends frogs all over the place, and the magicians replicate the plague. Then there's the third plague, and all of a sudden, the magicians can't replicate it. And this is what they say. The gnats, that's being the the part of the plague, were on people and animals everywhere, and the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, this is one of three times that this is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, and this is the one that gets the most commentary, and it gets the most commentary because it's located in the central story of the people of Israel, which is a story about liberation. Jesus says to them, if I don't do this by the power of the evil one, I do it by the finger of God. In other words, this is about liberation. This is why the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he doesn't just stop there. Jesus then tells this story that feels a little interesting, we can say it that way. He talks about like if there's a strong man who's guarding his house, like you kind of can't get in until there's someone who's stronger, who overpowers him. And then what does he say? Then he takes the plunder. This idea of a strong man and plunder is tied first to the book of Enoch, where it talks about this idea of a strong man. And it says, and God binds that strong man up, being the fallen angels, and casts them into the abyss. Many believe that the book of Enoch was drawing from the Hebrew prophets, where they talk about this idea of strong man, and they talk about this idea of plunder. Isaiah 49 says this, can plunder be taken from warriors, or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says, yes, captives will be taken from warriors, and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Now, this plunder that Isaiah is talking about are actually people who are enslaved and oppressed. This is the kind of plunder he's talking about. Jeremiah 31 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. The Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those who are stronger than they. This idea of the strong men is the word that's used there. So when Jesus tells this little story, what he's pointing toward again is liberation. This is what this whole thing's about. This is why he finishes by saying, you know what people believe. 
If someone casts out a demon, it goes around in desert places. This is all common uh, legend in the minds of those who are listening. And he talks about this person who's had this demon thrown out or has been healed of this illness is now clean and ordered. But then what happens, he says, contrast that with what happens when the evil forces come back and how disturbed and disrupted this individual is. He contrasts these two kingdoms, one that's about liberation, one that's about oppression, one that's about order and freedom, and one that's about destruction. What I find fascinating in Jesus' response is that he elevates the conversation beyond the accusations and the pointing of fingers and says, let me tell you what I'm actually really fundamentally about. I'm about liberation. And I'm about liberation for everyone. And if you're not about liberation, then you are against me. Because liberation is about the act of gathering people. And what you're, what you're interested in if you're not gathering is scattering the people, using these images from the Hebrew scriptures about the action of God wanting to gather all people to himself. This is the same words you hear in Jesus's, come out of Jesus' mouth when he looks over the city of Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. There's this ache in Jesus' heart to gather all people, that all would come, that all would actually experience the liberation that he wants. What's fascinating to me about this conversation and Jesus' response is that at one level, these baseless accusations point at Jesus and say, you are the enemy. See, whenever we participate in this, what we say to the other is, you are the enemy. Chad Myers refers to this as the political war of myths. He says, whenever we feel threatened by another, what we typically do is launch some sort of accusation that connects our enemy with the mythical cultural arch demon. Because if we can make them bad, then we can be right and everything feels good for us. But Jesus, curiously enough, doesn't do that. Jesus elevates the conversation and says, first of all, let's talk about who the real enemy is. The evil one, the forces of evil, that which is opposed to the things of God. I'm here to liberate people from that. Are you with me? Maybe that's why there's such silence. Like no one actually seems to respond to Jesus out of those making the accusations. Because Jesus knows who the enemy is. Uh, a week or two ago, I got invited to be a part of a panel that was discussing white Christian nationalism. It was a little bit tricky to tell people like what I was doing. Um, some friends of ours actually texted my wife and me and said, hey, would you like to have dinner with us on Monday? And my wife's like, no, Michael's speaking at a white Christian nationalism event. And I was like, whoa, anti-white Christian nationalism event. Just so you know. Um, boy, that's going to be a good soundbite if you want to use that one. Not based on, uh, you know, accusation. It's based on fact. 
And so I, I go there, and it was held, uh, it was hosted by uh, the Jewish community, and I was a part of a panel, and one of the women on the panel was a Jewish woman, and another one was a woman of color, and then there was me, like right in the middle. And so we begin talking about white Christian nationalism, and toward the end of the night, this woman of color said, I think it's important to name something here. We could very easily go down the road of talking about all of those people who are supporting this ideology, and yes, it is dangerous and it's damaging, but it's also dangerous and damaging for the white people who are involved in it. And I thought to myself, this is a woman who has the depth of soul, who knows who the enemy actually is. You see, I come to this story and I watch how Jesus doesn't just come in and broadside those who are making these accusations. He doesn't point the finger at them and say, no, it's you, not me. Jesus remembers what he is about. He's about liberation for all people. And he knows who's opposed to liberation. The forces of evil, the evil one, those who are opposed to the things of God. And very subtly in the words that he offers he almost gives this invitation. Aren't we all on the same team here? Aren't we all after the same thing? It's a funny thing preparing sermons because oftentimes the first idea that you come to isn't the idea you leave with. And so I came to this passage and I read it a few times and I thought, oh, those stupid religious people always challenging Jesus. And I just had it in my head the whole time. What we were going to do was sit here and we were going to get together and collectively bitch about all the people that aren't in this room that believe differently than us so we can all leave feeling way better about ourselves. After all, isn't that what we love to do in religious communities when we get together? Very uncomfortable in this room right now. <laughs> but what happened is I kept reading, kept studying, kept reflecting. And this is the question that came up for me over and over. Who's your enemy, Michael? Who's your enemy? Who is your enemy? Who do you believe is your enemy? And that's the question I just simply want to leave you with this morning. Who is your enemy? enemy. Let's pray together. Uh, God, it's troubling sometimes to consider that you are for all people. And it's troubling because if we're honest with ourselves, there are some people that we are against. People that we are not for. And so I ask that you would allow us just to sit with the question, who is my enemy? Would you cultivate within us more grace, more compassion, more mercy, more love, more invitation, more forgiveness, so that we, like Jesus, can remember and can identify who it is that's really against all of us? And remember you, the God who are for us. 
We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said. Thanks for engaging our teaching with us as we explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in the world. Before you go, we wanted to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. Coming up on September 15th to 17th, DCC Women will be hosting their fifth annual retreat. We're excited to dive into the theme Nourish and explore what this means for us as individuals and as a community of women at DCC. You can learn more and sign up at denverchurch.org. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email, which you can find on denverchurch.org, or download our DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. It is always great to be together. Thank you.